Welcome to the Enlightened Discipline Podcast with Scott Stoffer, a certified financial planner in Silicon Valley. The Enlightened Discipline Podcast is about moving you and your family towards better wealth. This podcast is purely educational. It's Scott's way of paying it forward, helping people make better financial decisions. And now, on with the show with Scott Stoffer and co-host Matt Halloran. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to go over step five of the 10 steps to a better investment experience. We've been talking about these 10, and you've been uh, really working us through each of them. And today, we're going to talk about taking the right risks. But before we dive into what that means, would you mind giving us a quick summary? Yeah, Matt, um, you know, we have really been talking about when we talk about, you know, better steps or better investment experience. We've been talking about how capital markets work, how millions of participants buy and sell securities every day, and that real-time information you know, helps set prices. We talked about the efficient market hypothesis. You know, that was from Eugene Fama in about 1966, and how it says that it's really difficult, if not impossible, for the average investor to profit from attempts to beat the market through stock picking, that it's just a fool's game. We, we looked into why most mutual funds underperform their benchmarks, and that a strong track record, you know, history, historical performance is not necessarily a good indicator of future performance. We talked about how high costs and excessive turnover can really contribute to that underperformance. And you know, Matt, the market really does a good job of pricing securities and making it difficult for managers to outperform the benchmark by, by trying to outcast other participants. You know, chasing past performance is just not a good investment strategy. Instead, we said you need to let the market do the work for you that throughout history, markets have rewarded investors for the capital they supply, and historically, the equity and bond markets have provided growth of wealth that more than offset inflation. Well, I, I think I'm following you here about all of this stuff, but you still haven't told us what we should do. Yeah, you're right, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today. This is all you need to learn about taking the right steps, which is um, taking the right risks, which is step five to a better investment experience. And I think what's interesting here, before we get into the specific you know, fifth step, what's interesting is, is really to look at how most people do invest. And, and I've been watching this and like most people and, and reading it and studying it for quite some time. And, and I think what I've seen there are sort of four common ways that, that the individual investor invests their money. And, and so here are the four ways. The first thing they do is, is without knowing it, they try to predict the future. You know, it's these these instances where they have, uh, you know, I have a proven system for picking stocks. Or I've heard people say, you know, I work in the technology sector and I know that technology is going to continue to surge throughout the next year. So one way or another, they are trying to predict the future about what's going to happen with investments. And they let that determine what they do. That's that's number one. Number four is they act on impulse. It, when, when things get bad, they say, I can't take it. I'm getting out. Uh, or, or when things are good everybody's making money and, and I want a piece of the action too. And, and so they don't necessarily think about their long-term goals and what they should or, or shouldn't be doing. They try to predict the future. Number one, they try to act on impulse. Number two, number three is they bet their savings on hunches and tips. You know, they, they say things like, I heard Jim Cramer say on his show, mad money, I better sell. You know, so then I'm going to sell. Or my friend works and, and he said I needed to buy in this new startup or this new investment, or this is the next best thing. And, and they do it that way. And that's just not a good long-term strategy. 
The fourth thing that I've seen people do is they're swayed by the media and the financial press. And this is where it's just a, such a disservice to investors. You know, there was a headline all the way back in 1979, and it said, the death of equities. Gosh, if you read that, why would you ever invest in, in equities anymore? The Fortune magazine had a great one in 1999. Their thing was, retire rich, a simple plan to have it all. I don't know anybody who's rich and has it all. So, you know, again, um, what I've seen is that people tend to have these these sort of um, common ways that they invest. They, they try to predict the future. They try to act on impulse. They're betting their savings on hunches or tips they get from friends or a cocktail party. Or they're swayed by what they read in magazines and newspaper and headlines and all those things. So instead of looking to Wall Street for answers or the newest product, you know, we really think that investors are much better served looking at academic research and the evidence from this research. So we're gonna talk about six facts or what are called dimensions of expected returns that investors can use to help guide them in taking the right risks, which is step five on our journey of 10 steps to a better investment experience. Some of these are really well known to most investors, but sometimes you can get lost in all the frenzy of the media reporting about financial markets and the advertising on Wall Street so we're going to walk through these, and, and I think they'll help people make better decisions. Okay. So you're going to start with four factors or dimensions of equity markets and what investors need to know, right? Right. Absolutely. So number one, um, we're just going to use some simple words to kind of describe these. Number one is, is market. And so most investors know that stocks can provide a greater expected return than bonds. So by market, we just mean understanding the greater expected return that you can get from investing in stocks over bonds. You know, some of this really came out in, in 1952, actually. Harry Markowitz did some research into diversification and portfolio risk. Um, he actually got a Nobel Peace Prize for it in 1990. James Tobin did some work in 1958 that looked at the shifting focus from security selection to portfolio structure, and, and he actually got a Nobel Peace Prize in 1981. And so when we talk about the first, you know, sort of six things that you can do to really help you take the right risks, number one is understanding what we call the equity premium, that you can get a premium for your capital that you invest by investing in equities over stocks. Most people know that one, uh, not too difficult. The next one is an area of focus that we call size. And this is where we look at the relative performance among stocks is largely dependent upon company size, whether it's a small company or a large company. This was research done by, by a guy by the name of Rolf Bantz in 1981. And, and basically, if you look at smaller companies, there's a little bit more risk associated with it. But as an investor, because you take that extra risk, you expect a higher return for the use of your capital. Now, when that came out and started to be used in the early 1980s, nobody knew about it. But today, the small cap premium, I think, is pretty well known. So people understand that. The third one is price. Um, you know, we look at this dimension or this factor. And before we do, let's take a step back and to really review a couple things about this. So a, a company's stock price reflects all the information available from the millions of investors who are buying and selling every day. Almost instantaneously, good information usually leads to a price increase. Bad information leads to a price decrease. So a value company is one where the current information pushes its price to be low as compared to its book value. Now, sometimes you hear the word book value and you're kind of like, what, is, what does that mean? Well, essentially, you're just trying to add up all the, 
the things that, you know, if you look at it from an individual perspective, what are all the assets that you own? You know, your home, your you know, savings account, you know, your investments, all those different things. For a company, it's very similar. They're looking at all their, you know, their inventory, you know, all the, the products and services that they have. And so, that, you know, they can estimate what those things are. They have to take out some of their loans and other things. But that's what's kind of called the book value. So when a, when a company on paper is worth more than the price in the market, it's, it's what we call a growth company, uh, excuse me, a, a value company. Now, a growth company would be the opposite. That's when the price on paper is worth less than the market price. So when we come back to this third identity, this third factor or, or dimension in the equity markets, we talk about price. What we're really talking about is that regardless of the reason, the data suggests that as a group, value stocks tend to beat growth stocks. And this really came out in, in 1993 from some research that Eugene Fama and Kenneth French did. Uh, it was actually called the multi-factor asset pricing model and value effect. And essentially what it did was it just talked about how a market, you know, investing in stocks, size, small companies, and value companies provide a premium to investors where the price of the stock is, is really important. So we've got those three, market, uh, we're talking about the equity premium. We've got the size or the small cap premium. We've got the price, which is the value premium. And now we're going to talk about the fourth one, which is profitability. And profitability really just measures how a company uses its investors' capital and assets. So the idea that a, a profitable company is going to perform better than a less profitable company over time isn't really a new idea. And in fact, I think it's it's common sense. But they weren't actually able to tie that into actual investment returns until there was some research done in 2012, actually, which was done by a guy by the name of Robert Novi Marks. And, and his research was called The Other Side of Value, the Gross Profitability Premium. And his research and additional research identified how best to implement a strategy to capture this profitability premium in investment portfolios. Okay, Scott. So what about the two factors for the fixed income market that you mentioned earlier? Yeah, and I know we jumped through those pretty quick, right? We were talking about market, which is the equity premium. We were talking about size, which is the small cap premium. We were talking about price, which is the value premium. And then we talked about profitability, which is the profitability premium. So those things can really help an investor understand how to take the right risks in their equity allocation. When we're talking about fixed income, I think it's really important to remember that just like in the equity markets, we're talking about the factors or the dimensions that largely drive relative performance in fixed income. Or where's the best place an investor can deploy their capital in fixed income markets in the form of a loan so that they can get good income as well as the return of their principal. And so there's, there's two areas there. Uh, and, and we talk about them in terms of term and credit. So by term, we mean the, the length of the loan in years. You know, what we mean here is that generally longer term bonds are more sensitive than shorter term bonds to unexpected changes in interest rates. This is also sometimes called maturity risk. You know, in, in longer term bonds, I think we all know this carry a little bit more risk than shorter term bonds because if I'm lending my money out for 10 years versus one month, I know I'm carrying more risk. Credit exists where there's the risk that a company's credit quality could, could you know, slide or decrease. And as a bondholder or a creditor, you could lose some or all of your investment. So I really think that when we're looking at equities, understanding you know, the equity premium, the small cap premium, 
the value premium and profitability premium. Those make a lot of sense, and I think investors can see where to go with that. In fixed income, I think it's a little harder with term and credit. So that's why I think it's also important to remember that you know fixed income in general is very, very different than equity market investing. And, and taking the right risks in the fixed income market is just different than what we do in the equity market. It's, it, it, it doesn't make it any easier, you know, because that's not what Wall Street wants us to think. You know, there are so many different products out there to entice investors in the fixed income space that offer these guaranteed, you know, returns from insurance companies and annuities and all these other kinds of things. So I just think that when we're looking at fixed income a little differently than equity, it's important for investors to remember that the role of fixed income investing is to reduce the overall volatility of your portfolio. You shouldn't necessarily look to your fixed income investments to provide you equity-like returns. And again, that's not what Wall Street wants you to do, right? They want you to look at it just like you do, you know, equities. So it's pretty, pretty clear that that's not necessarily in your best interest. So you can use the term and the credit premiums to build a fixed income portfolio that really help us, helps you reduce the volatility of your portfolio. You know and so what we would... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I, I just – I'm so happy that you're talking about this. It's This is such a vital piece of communication that I think is going to be great, values to, great value to the listeners because I don't think people really grasp what risk truly means. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we have some show notes that you can download from the website that, that outline, you know, at least the first five steps, and, and we'll get all of them on there as we go through the podcast. But taking the right risks is really just about understanding how an investor can best use their capital to maximize their return. Uh, we've talked about that relationship between risk and reward. And, and I think sometimes people get caught up into, you know, I'm going to buy this, I'm going to buy that, my friends are doing it. This is, you know, I've seen other people in their situations make money doing this, therefore I should do that. And, and it doesn't always work that way. You really do need to think about how you're going to deploy your capital. Sometimes it's interesting to use those different terms that we don't always think about in everyday investing. But how are you going to deploy your capital just like the company that you work for thinks about how it's going to deploy it? So next time we're going to talk about this risk and reward in a little bit more detail. Um, step six is called practice smart diversification. So today it was really talking about how we're going to build a portfolio that focuses on exposure to proven and academically tested factors or dimensions that can give you the highest expected return for the amount of risk that you're willing to take. Um, so that's it, Matt. We're done. Thank you very much, Scott, and thank you very much for your time today. Thank you for listening to Enlightened Discipline, brought to you by Better Wealth, proudly serving Silicon Valley for over 15 years. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at betterwealth.us, where Scott will share his insight on how to stay on track in control and achieve what matters. 